This Week at Hope Point. There seems to be a disillusionment uh, among God's people. I don't know if it's because of the past three to five years and you know, new darkness that we've seen and experienced, but almost a disillusionment of what good is it to serve God? I think I'm just not going to do it and live for now. Just get all the goodies now because it just didn't seem like there's any, any point that people do that when they stop believing in a new heaven and a new earth. And John says, get your mind off the things of earth. Fix your eyes on Jesus, all that he's done to prepare a, a new earth for you and to make you new for that new earth. We're so glad to have you join us for today's message. We pray that it would challenge and encourage you to applaud God, follow Christ, and live on mission. Let's listen to what Richard has to say to us from God's holy word. When I was 19 years old, I traveled to uh, California. I was a sophomore at Clemson, just finished that year. And I was invited by a ministry to work in Anaheim for the summer. And I got in my little um, Honda Civic, a 1978 Honda Civic, and began that journey. I only had three cassette tapes with me, James Taylor of the Beach Boys and Elvis. So I know all those t- songs very well. And uh, it was just such a long drought, five hour, I mean, five days, basically. And I can remember going through Kansas. Like, I don't know if you've ever driven through Kansas, but I could show you 100 pictures of Kansas, and they're all that picture. <laughs> so I said, this trip is never going to end. And then I crossed the border into Arizona and uh, made sure uh, that I stopped and saw God's big ditch, the Grand Canyon. And when I stood before that massive piece of artwork, I just said every single hour in that car was, was worth it. You may feel like that today as we come to Revelation chapter 21, that we have <clears throat> started back in November of 2021, uh, our journey through Revelation, and we've completed 20 chapters, and you may have at times said, <clears throat> I don't know if I'm going to be able to handle another uh, hardship in the book. The book is filled with Sometimes the church brings hardship on itself through its flaws. Sometimes the church experiences hardship because of persecution. There are all sorts of demonic powers known in Revelation as dragons and beasts, false prophets. Culture is working against the church. All sorts of organizations working against the church. Martyrs, beheadings, it's, and then judgments, uh, hurricanes, uh, earthquakes, and then finally in chapter 20, the, the terrifying judgment of God upon all the world that rebelled against Jesus Christ. And so you may have said, I can hardly drive another mile through this, and all of a sudden we come today to the Grand Canyon of heaven in, uh, in the book, in the Bible. There's not a more stunning picture of heaven than what we're looking at today. I think I'll read it, and then we'll dive right into it. Revelation chapter 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death 
or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. I don't know anybody who is worthy and capable of handling uh, this text. Uh, So by the Spirit of God, I will try in his might to illumine something from these verses for the sake of your joy and perseverance. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, is obviously a picture of the future. We don't always know in Revelation if we're looking at the future or the present. Here, we absolutely know because it is the new heaven and the new earth that can only be created after this earth is is destroyed. It is a picture of the future. A lot of people get sad when they look at uh, verse 1 and at the end of it and say there's no longer any sea. And they go, oh man, does that mean no more sunburn and no more, I don't play with my kids and have a, have a pound of sand in my swimsuit. I, I don't really think literally he means no more sea. If you are a pure literalist, then you have to concede the fact there is not going to be any sea, ocean, in the new earth. But in a book that's filled with figurative language, I take this as figurative, which makes me then ask the question, why would he use the concept of the sea to talk about it? And I I think the answer is because of what the sea represents. We all know of its beauty, but given the wrong time to be on the ocean, the sea is terrifying, and it can change so quickly. It can go from a sunny day to a cloudy day to a windy day to a, a stormy day. And so I think when John talks about there's not going to be any more sea, I think he's talking about there's not going to ever be a change of circumstances ever again that bring terror into your life because your whole life just changed. No more Everything will be calm in eternity forever. And we sort of saw a picture of that in Revelation. Well, let me just say this. Psalm 69, there's a couple chapters in the Bible that talk about people's fear of the sea because of what I just described. The writer says, verse one, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters, the floods engulfed me. And of course, the prophet Jonah, who was thrown into the ocean after he ran from the Lord, And he wrote, the engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around around my head. You know, I have, uh, I was reading this week all about the sea and just trying to find some ways to explain this. And it's amazing to read diaries of those who were like on ships in the 1600s. They were so superstitious, like never wanted to do anything to offend God. They wouldn't even set sail on Friday because that was the day that God's son was crucified. So they were always trying to not do anything to, you know, stir up a storm. And even my friends that live on the coast and are, familiar with, um, you know, boating, they always look at the, the reeds in the marsh, and if there's any much of movement at all on the, the marsh reeds, they won't go out because they know it's much worse way out in the ocean. So the ocean represents uncertainty, change, and God is telling us in Revelation 21.1 that there's never going to be anything in, on the new earth. There's never going to be a time in life when uncertainty and painful mystery comes to the point that it causes you to cry out, why, God, did everything change? 
Never again will we experience the pain of, of change. You know, toward the beginning of the book, uh, when we saw God, the first picture of God on the throne, he was incredibly, there was incredible calm there. Verse one, chapter four. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with somebody sitting on it. In front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass clear as crystal. So there was a reminder that when God in his sovereign authority gives command over all things, the sea is calm and stays calm. And this is really what John is getting at in Revelation 21, that there's not going to be any more disruptions in heaven to the calm that we enjoy for all of eternity. Another reason I think he mentions sea is because this is where in the book of Revelation, we first see the rise of evil. Revelation 13, verse 1, the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. We just found out that was Satan in the previous chapter. And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had 10 horns and seven heads with 10 crowns on its horns and on each head a blasphemous name. So you have the dragon and then out of the ocean, you know, figuratively there was this one that we eventually knew was the Antichrist, the opposer of God's people. And that, we had already seen that in the Old Testament version of Revelation in the book of Daniel. Again, what comes out of the sea, the evil that comes out. Daniel 7, Daniel said, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. So one of the reasons that we love our eternal life on the new earth that comes out of heaven, or the new city that comes out of heaven, that comes to the new earth, is because of the vanquishing of evil the destruction of all spiritual and human rebellion, including our own rebellion. Perfect calm, never a change brought ever again because of, of evil. So when you look at this, you know, in chapter 21 and, 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 and God says there's no longer any sea, I don't think it means that God is anti-ocean because the end of the book talks about God's, well, all of the Bible talks about God's love for the oceans and the seas and the, you know, the sea monsters and all the animals that swim. And then at the end of the book, we have this great river that flows through the center of heaven. I don't think God is anti-water. I think he's anti-chaos. That's what no more sea really probably means. There will never be chaos again. And the violent, turbulent things of life absolutely devastating our, our joy. Yeah, you're just like the, the disciples, remember that day they were on the Sea of Galilee and all of a sudden a tempest, a wind, a storm uh, whipped up and these were experienced fishermen. They were experienced sailors. This wind was so intense, they thought they were going to die. And on the boat with them that day was Jesus, but he missed all the excitement because he was what? He was sleeping because when you control everything, you never are afraid of anything. So he was sleeping. They woke him up and said, don't you care? How about that? Don't you ever said that? Don't you care about what's happening? And Jesus said, 
or the Bible says what he did, he got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, quiet, be still. You need to try that one day next time you're at the ocean. Just try that out. Look what happened. Then the wind died down, it was completely calm, and he said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Or like, why didn't you trust me when you trust me? That uh, miracle in the Gospels separates Jesus Christ from all other religious leaders. Because anybody can claim anything, but when you calm an ocean with one command, you are God. And that day, the disciples figure that out. I love their question. Who is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. The reason I know there's going to be perfect peace in heaven is because we have seen what happens when Jesus Christ speaks. When he speaks, winds cease, blind people see, crippled people walk, and dead people live again, and demons flee at the sound of the voice of Christ. I don't know what you're going through today, this week, Hunter and I spent an hour plus out in the lobby. Uh, obviously, we have a lot of homeless people going through the parking lot throughout the week. But a girl begged us, could she come inside, running from a boyfriend who had beaten her. Sure, messed up life but no more messed up than mine and no more messed up than Hunter's. And we knew that. And just to tell her, I know you think there's nothing ever that's gonna get better, but Jesus Christ can bring peace to your life. But we told her, Jessica, you have to submit your life to his voice. When he speaks and you respond, you'll know peace, but not before. Let me say one more thing about <clears throat> the new heavens and uh, the new earth. They're new because the old has been removed. That's what the end of the verse says, that, that uh, the first earth, where we are now, had passed away. We saw that last week with the judgment of mankind at the same time earth and sky fled from God as he was judging the creation, destroying it. And we referred to pretty graphic verse in 2 Peter, chapter three, verse 10, the heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth will be destroyed in this way. So God intends to burn up everything on this planet. He destroyed it before with a flood, and the next time he destroys it, it'll be with a fire. And it's amazing, more than ever, <clears throat> we hear talks of, of, of saving the planet. Every January, I get sort of interested in this meeting that takes place in Davos, Switzerland, among economic and political elites around the world, and they spend a fair part of their time talking about what is it going to take to save the planet, what adjustments and changes do all of us need to make, and if we don't, it could be destroyed in like 12 years, and always after 12 years, it's another 12 years. Well, this year, I just read this yesterday, uh, 
there was one of the leaders of, of, of that movement was concerned about our drinking of coffee, and this is what he said. He's a Hubert Keller, he's a Swiss banker. He said, uh, every time we drink coffee, we are putting CO2 into the atmosphere. And so he proposed that there be a worldwide reorganization of all uh, coffee farms. And, and matter of fact, he even made another motion. You know, these aren't laws, but he just said, we, he said, any activity that destroys this earth should be regarded as ecocide and should be treated by the same international laws that you would use for genocide. Now, I'm not sure if this man who wants to uh, take over the coffee industry and talk about, you know, it's bad for all the coffee you drink in our lobby today, but I don't know if he knows this, but there's a 125 million people in the world that make their primary living from coffee. That'd be a lot of people to arrest for ecocide. Now, last year, uh, now I'll tell you this, Dr. Matthew <clears throat> Willicke, he's a earth science researcher uh, who said, I love this quote about in response to the coffee things. He said, yep, we need to stop drinking coffee so Swiss banker Hubert Keller can fly another four million miles on his jet. <laughs> and, and that's true. Last year at this same conference, <clears throat> one of the climate activists that was on this committee said, when you stop and think about it, it's pretty extraordinary that we, a select group of human beings, are able to sit in a room and come together and actually talk about saving the planet. That's not gonna happen. <clears throat> this earth cannot and will not be destroyed by man. It's not gonna end in an ecological disaster. It's gonna end in an eschatological calamity. God will end it. It doesn't mean that I am pro-personal uh, and industrial pollution that's foolish, but I'm just saying it's impossible to stop what God is going to do to the planet, and that is he is going to destroy it. <clears throat> um, so how it's going to be destroyed is an interesting debate. There are half of the people that read Revelation, whatever, that will say, God's going to destroy everything, an uh, annihilation. <laughs> then there's another half that say it's going to be radical burning, but for the purpose of, of transformation. Almost like scientists or maybe physicians would put something in an autoclave that is, uh, you know, can be heated up high pressure and sterilize, get rid of viruses and all of that. Is you know, God going to put the earth in big, some big autoclave? And, uh, and, and so, I don't know, but I'll tell you this just so you can say, you know, you heard it here. There is <clears throat> the reason that some people would say this earth is not going to be annihilated but transform is because of <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 15. It's interesting. Uh, and I, I think it's a good argument. Uh, God does not destroy our bodies. They die. They're put in the ground. And, you know, in war, they might die at sea and, you know, our, our atoms go everywhere, but they'll be regathered. God does not destroy our body. He, he just 
incinerates all the sin out of them, but then he gathers them back to give us a glorified body in the end. So a lot of people think that would make sense to parallel that he's going to do that with the earth. And the reason why that's encouraging to some people is because you sort of have a familiarity with this planet and you'd say, mm, I'd, like to, I'd like to see some stuff again. And uh, so I don't know. Uh, I'll tell you this. The book of Romans does hint that that could be a, a right theory. Romans 8.21, the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. The whole creation has been groaning or longing for this. So there seems to be something about the creation that looks forward to being made new. It doesn't look forward to being annihilated. So you say, well, why waste time even debating this? Because I think it will help your worship, which is the purpose for everything we do here. Either Jesus Christ is so powerful that he's going to destroy every single Adam in the universe. That's, that's powerful. Or he's so powerful that he's going to send such a cleansing fire, holy, radiant fire onto this planet that he incinerates and totally removes every trace of evil that's been done by 6,000 years of human sin and rebellion. Either way, He's powerful. He's powerful. So there is a point, and it just for you to appreciate, you have a big Christ. You have a big Christ. But the purpose of all of it anyway is the earth has to be made new to receive what is coming down. Revelation 1 and 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. So, uh, people always ask, you know, where, 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 do, where do we go? Believers, after we die, do we go to heaven? Yes. Are we going to live on a new earth? Yes. Both are correct. And I'll tell you, I want to show you later how that works. Right now, I just want to show you how beautiful this is, that this is a promise that has been kept at this point. Because if you were a Jewish Christian, you were very familiar with what a Jewish wedding looked like. It was normally three parts. There was this betrothal or uh, engagement where the, the families would get together, moms and dads would get together and bring the future bride and groom together. And the families would agree and sign legally, uh, this wedding will take place. Then the bride and groom were not allowed to spend any really significant time together. They would do their life for like maybe a year uh, during this entire engagement period. And then at the end of the year, the bride all of a sudden would be presented to the groom. And it would take place at a feast that would normally last seven days. And the bride would be presented at the beginning of the feast. And at the end of the feast, there would be the ceremony. It would be husband and wife for a lifetime. And this new union would take place and they would be married uh, for the rest of their life. So this is what Revelation is talking about, that God said at the beginning of history, I will marry you, church. And this is his, at the end of, this in Revelation 21, is God keeping his promise, showing up for the wedding, and us being brought into perfect relationship with our, our Lord. Um, as you can see, this verse does talk about 
the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. I'll say a couple things about that. First, why would it be called the New Jerusalem? Well, remember God, when he entered into a relationship with Israel in the Old Testament, the capital of Israel became eventually Jerusalem. And Jerusalem had some glory days. Uh, David was the greatest king, reigned there for 40 years. Uh, some other good kings, but a lot of bad ones. And a lot of bad things happened in the city. They turned from the Lord. So Jerusalem never really was the people, uh, the city that God intended it to be. So here, God is saying, there will be a day when my people will be everything I intend for them to be. And so he calls them the city, the, <clears throat> the, new, the new Jerusalem. Now, it's interesting when the city is coming down uh, out of heaven, <clears throat> it is a reminder that the only way anything ever gets fixed in life is when God comes down to fix it. We can't fix it. That's the whole, that's what we sing about. That's what we're, that's the heart of Christianity. We can't fix us. And, and which is why the world misses the Lord. They think they can fix themselves. There was a, you remember the story in the Old Testament uh, when God told a, a, a group of people who lived in one city, the city was called Babel. He told them, I want you guys to spread out to new regions of the earth and <clears throat> that'll be the best thing for you. And they said, no, you don't know city life, God. We know city life. And the best thing is to stay here because we know how to do cities better than you, God. So they rebelled. And then they said, they were so arrogant as they said, we just think we're just gonna go ahead and build something and just build our way into heaven. Genesis 11, then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. And that scene has been repeated throughout history of mankind living in cities that believe they do not need to depend on God because they can do it. And as a result, the great cities, all cities, but especially the great cities of this earth are filled with pain and suffering because of that attitude there. We know how to do city life. We don't need to listen to God. From New York to Chicago to San Francisco to Rio to Bogota to Sao Paulo, from Paris uh, to London uh, to Barcelona, from Moscow to Mumbai, uh, to Beijing, the cities of the world, even though they have tall buildings and bright lights, those cities are filled with pain and injustice and harm and crime, pollution, because of people saying, we know how to do cities, God. And the result is, not a holy city, but a corrupt city. So the only way to get fixed in life is for you to understand the answer's gotta come from God into you. Remember when Jesus was talking to uh, the, maybe the leading uh, religious scholar of his day, Nicodemus, 
And Nicodemus was trying to get up, like the, the people of Babel. He was trying to get up to God through uh, memorizing uh, all of the uh, Bible verses in the Old Testament and doing all of the commands of the Old Testament. He was trying to get up. And Jesus said, no, you need a transformation that occurs from the Spirit of God down into your life. And this is how Jesus said it to him. John three thirteen. no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So the answer always comes, God into you because you can't fix you. He's the only one who can transform a life. He's the only one who can transform a city. And that's the most wonderful thing about the new Jerusalem. It's gonna be the first time in history on earth that a holy city exists. A city of perfect love, perfect harmony, perfect relationships in the new Jerusalem. There's one other thing that's interesting about this city. It says it, it, at the end of history, it comes down out of heaven. But it doesn't say that that's when it was constructed. This is when it came down, leaving wide open the door that maybe it's constructed already and just waiting on the end of times. Maybe this new Jerusalem is in heaven right now. And I say that for a couple, a couple reasons. There was a man in the Old Testament named Abraham who was quite devoted to the Lord and God told him, leave your city and start walking to the place where I show you sort of limited directions. <laughs> and Abraham started walking and basically he never really found what he was looking for and he knew it. And Hebrews 11 talks about that. Abraham was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. They, all the people that went with him, were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared a city for them as if it's already happened. In heaven, obviously, it hasn't come to earth yet. Then, another thing that spikes my interest about that theory is what Jesus said to the disciples on the night before he was to be crucified. He told them, nobody says it better than he does, John 14, 1, do not let your hearts be troubled. My Father's house has many rooms. I am going there to prepare a place for you. He knew they were going to die soon, and most of them within a decade or two. And he was trying to encourage them, when you die, I will have prepared a place for you. So my understanding of Revelation 21, along with these other verses, is that the new Jerusalem has already been built. It's in heaven. And that's where believers who've already died are there now in that city. It'll come down to earth later. That's where they are now. Again, why would I say that? I think we have a pretty good photograph of what they're doing in there now. Hebrews 12, but you have come to Mount Zion, that was another name for Jerusalem, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. 
So he didn't say here of bodies made perfect because that still leaves out that we will be raised. But spirits, everything that we love about those that we love, because what we love is their personality, their soul, their emotions, their spirit, um, all their idiosyncrasies. And it says the spirits of those who are already made perfect and they're experiencing this immeasurable joy in heaven, thousands upon thousands. I just, this week, I don't want to brag, but I multiplied a thousand times thousand. It's a million, a million angels. How about a, a million electric guitar, a, a million keyboard, a million vocalists, and all those that you love that have already died, I think is good uh, proof uh, to lean in the direction that they are already in the city, the, the New Jerusalem in heaven. Um, you can see why, um, you know, John would be so excited about the life to come in this new city on earth when that happens. That he, he writes with these unparalleled words that we just never grow tired of. Revelation, that should be 21, for, sorry, 21 verse four. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Maybe my favorite words in Revelation. Is this not the great yearning of our heart God, would you just make everything new? That everything that hurts me and has hurt me or everything that I have hurt or every time I caused hurt, just, I want it to be new. We love new. God, would you please make everything new? And he says, I am. Everything that used to hurt you, trip you up, cause you to doubt God, depart from God, gone. Everything's new. No more hospitals, no more funeral homes, no more crime, no more betrayal, no more depression, no more persecution, no more fear, no more sin, no more shame, no more regret. All of that has passed away. And the reason that you and I are going to be able to live on that new earth, experiencing that, is because of what Jesus did on the old earth, the present earth. Just like he told Nicodemus, I had to come down from heaven to save you, to die on a cross, to absorb into my body all of your moral and spiritual sin that you committed on this earth, absorbed into his body, that's why you get to live on a new earth. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 19, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. To Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. I told you when we started this study in Revelation that the book of Revelation loves the Old Testament. 
The book of Revelation mentions verses or events in the Old Testament 400 times. It's pretty, pretty big for a New Testament book to be so reliant on the Old Testament. One of the big mentions of in the Old Testament that's brought over to the New Testament is Isaiah 65. I like it better than Revelation 21. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. The sound of weeping, of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. Imagine going to work every day for 100 million years and loving it. <laughs> That's what it says. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. Or the heartbreak, whether you parent a child who's filled with disease, parent a child who's died, or parent a child where you're forced to watch years of rebellion that break your heart. No more of that. Verse 25, the wolf and the lamb will feed together and they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. So much to love about those verses. My favorite of those is verse 17, how it began. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. This is the ultimate thing we want in life is for everything right now in your mind, everything in your mind right now that hurts your heart, whether it's something you have done, it's forgiven. You're not gonna be judged for it, but you're still alive, so you remember it. Not anymore, the new city, new earth. Or something that was done to you, maybe by a person or maybe by an event, not remembered anymore. You cannot experience pain in the new city on the new earth. Nothing about our former life will have the power to hurt us. No regret, no bitterness, no fear, no shame, because we will be perfectly new and the earth will be perfectly new. And that's why John ends with this admonition. Actually, it's, it's straight from God. It says, the voice of the one on the throne said this. Revelation 21.5, the voice said to John, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. Now, when I read that this week, I said to, my, I said to myself, oh, write it down. Hadn't he been writing everything down so far? Well, that would be way too much to try to remember later. So I'm thinking he's writing the whole book as he gets it. What do you mean, write it down? I think he's meaning John, Hope Point, These truths have become too familiar to you. Write them down again because you've forgotten them because it's not bringing hope to you. It's not bringing purpose to you. You're not living for that new earth, not living for all the joy of new earth and new heavens.
Write it down, church. Paraphrase. I'll paraphrase some more. Tape it on your mirror in the bathroom. Put it in your car. Put it on your desk at work. Put it in your book bag. But learn this again. Get your mind off the things of earth because that's what your mind is when you forget that. Every day, the world, culture, your flesh, they tell you what's the use. I might as well, what's the use? I just might as well live for everything now. Stuff and more stuff and you'll begin to talk like that. You'll begin to behave like that. You'll be driven by this world if you don't believe in the world to come that there is reward and joy. I'm speaking at Wofford tomorrow night to some college students, and the first thing I'm going to tell them is you got to know that verse in life of what in the world is trustworthy and true always. Because it's pretty, you know, when your life is going pretty well and you are, your health is good, uh, got a lot of money in the bank, and relationships are easy, and anything you touch is just successful. Well, I believe in heaven. You got it now. But you live long enough, you're going to encounter things that you can't fix. And they break your heart. And then everything that looked like it was trustworthy and true the day before is gone. So the only thing that's going to help us endure is the hope of, of heaven. It seems to me, and you, have, you agree or disagree, it seems to me, though, that there seems to be a disillusionment uh, among God's people. I don't know if it's because of the past three to five years and you know, new darkness that we've seen and experienced, but almost a disillusionment of what good is it to serve God? I think I'm just not gonna do it and live for now. I just get all the goodies now because it just didn't seem like there's any, any point. It, it, people do that when they stop believing in a new heaven and a new earth. And John says, get your mind off the things of earth. Fix your eyes on Jesus. All that he's done to prepare a a new earth for you and to make you new for that new earth. All that he's done, you get your mind on him, behold him, you'll become a great evangelist. You'll want to share Christ with as many people as you can. Tell them, you want to know how to get to heaven? You want to know how to live on the new earth? You want to know how to get out of hell? You don't have to go to hell. Jesus wants you to live on a new earth one day. All these people that are going on this mission trip down to Central America. You know, the, the greatest thing, most of my mission trips have been among the world's poor, world's persecuted. You just can't take much of all you got to tell them is that Jesus Christ so loves you that he gave his life for you on the cross so that you can live on a new earth with a new body, 
with unending joy and unending hope. Life on this earth is hard. For some of you, it may be your entire 100 years on this earth is going to be hard. But it's only 100 years, and the joy that God has for you is 100 million years. So wait on Him. Serve Him. Reward is coming. Joy is coming. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians, how much joy is awaiting you? No eye has ever seen, no mind has ever even dreamed up what God has in store for those who love Him. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.